Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Trades Talk. I'm here with Maggie, and we're getting ready to jump into this podcast with Trey Block with LMC Landscape Partners. Trey is the CEO of LMC Partners, and they're on a mission to professionalize the landscape industry and really partnering with professional landscape companies across the country to help elevate them and really take their businesses to the next level. Maggie, what were some of your takeaways from this episode? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Trey provides a unique perspective on what it looks like in this private equity space, the M&A space. And he comes from a very frontline background, working as a night manager for facility services company for many years. He's had many different roles at companies within the trades. And so he's telling, he takes us through what he's looking for as a partner when going into a industry as delicate as landscape and managing that relationship and really holding true to the to the values of the companies. Yeah, Trey's a straight shooter. He really gives us a backstage look into how the partnership with private equity works. And I think the word that we've said five times already is partnership. And mm-hmm. LMC Partners is truly that. They're not looking to... Yeah, of course, it's an acquisition process, but it's really a partnership more than an acquisition. And he, through this episode, really gives the back-end mindset and perspective of what makes a good landscape partner for LMC. So if you're looking to potentially exit one day, and, and I think everyone should have an exit plan, Maggie, this could be a great episode for you to understand what the private equity folks are looking for in a landscape business. What kind of EBITDA numbers you want to have, revenue, service mix, you really touch on all of that. Yeah, I think the one note that I have circled here on my notepad is elevates people. He's not looking to come in and take over these companies and completely redo and and exit people. He wants to elevate their existing model and just add a little bit more value to it. So let's dive into our conversation with Trey, and I hope you guys all enjoy it. All right, let's go. Well, we are so excited to have today's guest on the podcast. We have Trey Brock with LMC Landscape Partners. Trey has a very unique history. I'm going to have him tell us a little bit about it here, but want to give a shout out first to LMC Landscape Partners, who is a land and landscape top 100 company, which is awesome to see. And Trey, why don't you give a little introduce introduction to yourself and tell our listeners about who you are and where you come from? Yeah, thanks, uh, Maggie and Justin. Good to talk to y'all. I'm a almost 30 years now, which is hard to believe. Facility services business, right? I've been in service business my entire career. I now, as you said, I lead a company called LMC Landscape Partners, private equity-backed company. We're out making acquisitions, uh, finding partners, want to be part of our platform. We're focused on commercial landscape services, uh, maintenance and construction. We're primarily right now in Texas and Alabama, but have some other markets uh, with some exciting news probably coming in the future and some other markets we want to be in. Uh, So it's a pretty exciting endeavor. I've been in this role about two years now, two years December. So yeah, uh, time flies. I cut my teeth in this business, in the services business and facility services, right? So basically coming out of college, I became a management trainee for a company called Service Solutions, which is still around a uh, different ownership, but it was privately held at that time. 
started in the kind of bundle service facilities in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at a big retail three-level shopping mall. So we had, you know, we had landscape services, we had janitorial cleaning services, and then we had a HVAC maintenance and repair and then tenant turns right inside the mall. So, you know, I've gotten my paycheck, fortunately, from the frontline service workers my entire career, right? And so I have a real passion for the culture that exists inside of that group. I guess the unsung heroes in my mind, right? That was really exposed during COVID, right? But I've felt that way my entire career is, you know, people that don't get enough appreciation for the work they do. And then I think people aren't exposed as much how much of this type work is taking place in the background, right? People are shocked out kind of how many people it takes to keep places clean, right? To keep the landscapes looking well, to and small maintenance, repairs, those kind of things. So I have a real passion for that. And uh, I don't know that I'd ever work in any other service, any other business besides the service business. Um, I uh, Fortune 500 is where I spent my time before coming here with a, a very large facility services company. We had built a regional company back in late 90s, early 2000s to a uh, we basically from about 20 million to a couple of hundred million dollars in about six or seven years and ended up selling to a fortune 500. And I was asked to stay on and ended up spending the last 12 years in executive leadership for them. And then a couple of years ago, I, uh, private equity, obviously that money is flowing everywhere, right? There's a, yeah. there's a lot of consolidations being made and, you know, I'd gotten a lot of these opportunities and, I finally decided that it was something I was interested in. So I vetted out a few and landscape services, right? Always been part of the offering I had in facilities. So it was a natural fit for me. And then the the culture, I found myself with the private equity backer. There was a lot of vetting for me because I had heard a lot from my mentors and colleagues that have done this in the past about finding that right cultural fit. So that was important to me as well. So that's kind of where we are now. And I'd love to dig in and talk more about anything you want to talk about in my career or what we're trying to do now. Yeah, it, it's so cool because, Trey, when, one of the first things we talked about when we met was how you started as a night manager, literally the front lines, and have worked your way up to executive level at a Fortune 500 and now running your own kind of private equity business here, private equity-backed landscape company. So really the American dream there. And I think it's, it's a, tra- a testament of the trades in general. This is exactly why I work in the trades. It, it's funny when I tell people what I do, they have that similar response. Like, wait, there's a need for that? There's that many people that need the software that you sell? Yes. There are so many frontline workers out there. And what you're you're doing is really important by setting that example that you can really work from front lines all the way to leadership. Justin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, Trey. Well, thanks for coming on today. I think this is going to be a fun show for a lot of people, whether they're looking to potentially exit or join another company that's on the growth path. You guys are obviously focused on growth. And you know, my biggest question is, as we look into this is, what pushed you and the private equity team into the landscape industry versus maybe janitorial or another service-based sector? Yeah, I mean, for as we did the case study and we got ready to make the first acquisitions, it was, you know, coming out of COVID, 
it proved to be a pretty resilient business, right? You know, you may not have got all the extras or enhancements or people weren't spending, right? Like they were spending prior to COVID, but people still had to maintain their buildings. You know, class A real estate still had to look like class A real estate, right? Your grass, obviously it grows, right? So you couldn't let it be two or three feet tall, right? So you had to maintain. So uh, most companies that were running a good business were able to at least hang on to their reoccurring revenue, right? There was changes and cuts and people got leaned on and things. But for the most part, the business was still whole coming out of COVID, right? So that makes for a good case study. Another is, is it's uh, still a very fragmented business, right? So there's a lot of people in the business and a lot of different sizes, as you know, from all the way to the guy that just has the truck and he's, you know, mowing grass all the way to the companies like us, right? All the way to the even the publicly traded companies, right, that are operating here. So that's always something you're looking for is fragmentation, but then the ability to scale it, right? And I think that that's one of those things to where you can look at it and say, yes, there's an ability to scale it, but you can look at things that have been done in the past and you have to be careful how you scale a business like this, right? Because there's certain things, you know, it's a people business, right? The contracts are really only as good as the paper they're written on. And so if you don't have a plan that maintains and retains key talent and attracts key talent, but then also keeps a very positive people culture, I think you'd struggle with it. So, I mean, that's really how we looked at it, right? It's it's a needed business. It's a resilient business. It's always going to be here. And with the evolution to water conservation and hardscape and all that, it's still part of service. It still has to have service and installation and maintenance. So that's kind of how we came to that conclusion when we decided to make that investment. Yeah, I agree with that. And I am excited about that being in the landscape industry. I I do think we have a resilient sector and we have great people and it's a business that has shown it can withstand challenging times. It's going to be interesting to see the next three to five years, what happens in our economy and in our industry. But I'm pretty confident that landscaping will always have a place in the sector and and people will continue to spend money to beautify not only their properties, but their residences as well. Now, when we talk about growth through acquisition, Trey, what are you looking for and what is your team looking for when you are looking for an acquisition partner? What do you look for in a company? Yeah, I mean, first off, our model is, it's a little different from some of the consolidation that's been tried out there, right? It was we're we're not necessarily looking for businesses we can immediately buy and find synergies in or that, you know, I, I like to call them fixer-uppers, right? We're not really looking to buy fixer-uppers. We're looking to look for companies that, you know, there's several places they could be in life, right, where they've just grown so much over the last few years that they're kind of feel like they're, as, as their leadership grows and their I guess their expertise, they feel like they're kind of at capacity with that. So they're looking for what's next, right? How do I get to that next level? Several thresholds in business that are big jumps. A landscape company waking up a $5 million company one day, there is a big jump to go from five to say 10, you know, and then 10 is a 10 is where you're really starting to starve for things like technology and, you know, expertise and software, those type things, right? And then, of course, the markers that are the 20 millions and above, you know, the capital to support growth in those type businesses as you get larger is very difficult. So we're looking for people that are at kind of stages where they feel like that they've kind of outgrown themselves or they are very concerned about the liability they're owning by themselves, right? Or they're worried about having to put so much capital in a business to take it to the next level. 
Those are the yeah. kind of companies we're looking for. And that can be in multiple places. That can be a founder that's even built their business and still has a lot of a lot of runway left in their career, right? But they want a partner that can kind of help take them to that next level. You know, they they want to remain a partner and be a large investor in the platform and just keep it moving forward, be part of the senior leadership team. Then there's people who are kind of to that point where they don't maybe have the legacy family members that are interested and they've reached a time where they're ready to, to kind of do less, right? And just take some of that stress off their plate. And they, you know, so that's the opportunity as well. And then I think in people in this business truly are concerned with the people that work for them, right? And so that's why we don't, we try not to put acquisitions in a box whatsoever. We sit down and just listen to kind of where you are and why you're even thinking about this and, you know, kind of what's, what's your pain points, what you've been successful at. And then we try to mold something that works for them. And that may be, like I said, it may be a a different role for them. It may be them staying on and continuing just in a partnership. It may be them transitioning away in a year's time, right? Or it may be, but most of them are very concerned with what we're going to do with their people. And we've been fortunate to where when we first made our, you know, we've made five, five acquisitions so far, made a couple okay. of really large ones and then some smaller ones. And we've been able to elevate people, right, into more senior roles. And people, by seeing that opportunity that scale has created, I think of our Houston business and how the founders there said, you know, we've grown, we're a tremendously large business, got a nice market share in Houston. But, you know, when it comes to this branch system we have in branch managers, that's kind of the end for us, right? So we have people that want to be more than a branch manager, that they're either going to go somewhere else and leave the business, or we're going to create opportunity through scaling and a partnership like this. So uh, I think that's a good example. Yeah, that's a great synopsis of that. And glad you mentioned five acquisitions. It sounds like there's no clear, like you're only going after companies with X amount in EBITDA and this specific exact recipe. You guys are a little more flexible, open to other opportunities, and also open to different opportunities on how the founder wants to play his cards, whether they want to retire out, they want to continue and be involved, roll equity, roll percentages. So I think that's a little different than some of the other private equity firms I've talked to. I think it is because if you look at our first five acquisitions, and then we've got three companies under LOI and some different geographies that you're going to find, a, I mean, just a broad array, kind of a hodgepodge of scenarios and sizes, right? And I think that does talk about our strategy and lend to our strategy is, I think for a company, if I was telling companies out there what we're targeting, just when I look at size and what it takes to get one of these deals closed and the time, right? I like for somebody to be at least a million dollars in EBITDA, right? If we can get at least that million dollars. And then when they're smaller, it has to be strategic in geography, right? You can't go off to states you're nowhere near where you have no infrastructure and buy a $1 million EBITDA business, right? Because it doesn't have a lot of infrastructure itself to help you scale and support that market. So you got to be strategic about the geography. If you're going into a new market, it needs to have enough scale where there's some infrastructure there to build off of. I kind of call those hub companies, right? And, and we're looking for those hubs in different markets. And then we're also looking for what we call kind of bolt-ons, right, that complement the business we have in a market really well. So that's kind of the thought process. But the revenue size in there from that million dollars of EBITDA and up, it's not really that important to us. It's really just what's the story, right? 
What's the health of the business? What's been the trajectory of the business, right? Have they organically grown? A lot of times, in spite of doing any sales and marketing, they've grown because they've got a good reputation in the business, right? And have they retained, right? Have they consistently shown the ability to retain when that 90 plus percent on their contract maintenance business? That's important to us. Yeah, that's that's really important. It's so funny, this $1 million in EBITDA, we've had a couple of conversations so far on the podcast regarding M&A and this $1 million in EBITDA seems to be the reoccurring theme that we've seen. And it's just so important because I guarantee a lot of companies out there aren't even looking at that as a benchmark, but it's an important what they should be. Tell me a little bit about how you get your leads. So when you're going to look for a company to buy or looking to a company to acquire, how do you build those leads by going to conferences? Do they come to you? How do you get your name out there as a player in this very competitive private equity space? Yeah, I mean, we fortunately, our private equity team is a very old private equity group. They've been around a long time, like one of the oldest in the Southeast, right? So they have a business development team and they have a ton of just kind of third party brokers that know them, right? And know what you know what businesses they're trying to build and so initially there is there is a lot of trying to throw your name out there everywhere but now we've started to get a lot of traction to where it seems like every week we're having some meetings right with somebody that's interested in selling their business or partnering with their business and so really for us it's a lot of third party brokers coming to us i think um, there's a lot of investment bankers out there i think that and something i'll say about investment banking groups. I think sometimes, obviously, people go where they see opportunity, right? So investment bankers have gotten involved in the business a little bit to where they've really inflated values on some of the founders to the point where it's you're on one extreme or the other, right? And it's hard for us to get back in the middle to show people really truly what their businesses are worth, right? So what I tell people is to, first off, if you can go directly to some of the private equities, right? Through their business development, they have all the resources in the world to help you figure out, you know, what's the value of your business. And I don't mean go to one, right? Go to several and have them each vetted out where you, you've got competitive, you know, competitiveness there. So you're understanding a good value. To me, the investment banker groups, they do a nice job, but I think they don't, I don't think they do their research on the industry in a lot of aspects, right? Where they really understand how we value, you know, how maintenance revenue and value compares to construction, non-reoccurring revenue. A lot of those things that come into play, age of fleet, right? What's your fleet look like, which is right. This is a heavy CapEx business, right? So, and I'm not knocking all investment bankers, right? We've got a lot of them we do business with. I just, and the one thing I would want them to do is inform yourself more in the business that you're trying to educate people in and get valuations on, right? Because once you tell a founder, your oh, your business is worth X, it's hard to get them, they start planning, they start mm-hmm. you know, doing the math, they start to understand that. And so I just think everybody needs to be a little more responsible in giving true values to people so they don't create kind of these aspirations one way or another that end up being correct, which makes it kind of hard to partner sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, kind of a follow-up to that and to put you on the spot a little bit with the competitive nature of the private equity space in the trades right now, 
What are you seeing as a standard multiplier or value for a company? I mean, that is a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) I would say competitive. First to start with is the competition in the market. I mean, there is a lot of private equity money out there, right? And uh, people have seen, you know, I think, and one thing that my private equity, it's very important to them. I will say, if I say nothing else about them, is they're very high integrity, right? That they really do. When they send you a letter of intent for a value, we have put a lot of thought into that and we plan to close that business without that number changing. And it's not just to see if it sticks to the wall. We want to close that business at that number, right? So I have a lot of businesses that circle back to us, you know, they're, or they'll say, you know, I've just got an offer that's so much better than that. And, you know, I'll be like, we talk through it and I'm like, look, if you can get that for this business, then, you know, you'd be a fool not to, right? And yeah. I said, look, it's no hard feelings. We're going to be here. You know, I hope it works out. And I've had quite a few circle back to where, well, at close, they tried to say, well, we're looking at your fleet now and this and that and those things. So we try to educate ourselves and collect enough information up front. The biggest thing is, is once you produce your earnings to us, the biggest part we try to our our due diligence process is quickly to prove out those earnings, right? So what you told us is what it was, right? Because then I feel good about getting us to close. We can probably work through everything else. So what I would tell founders too is because I'm dealing with some right now, this just large businesses that you're very surprised in the disorganization of their finances, right? So it's so important to spend the money with an accountant and get your, you know, not only your revenue, right, but expenses and get them bucketed in the right buckets, you know, code things to the right places. You know, it just saves a lot of work as you get down the road. Organized finances make us really comfortable, right, with the puts and the gets in the business, right? So I tell all founders is the time you become, especially a million dollar, even a company, it's time you make sure your finances are organized. And even if that's online QuickBooks, that's fine. There's plenty of geo codes and buckets to get things. Get your revenue segmented. Segment your revenue, right? Make sure you're splitting out the different revenue uh, streams you have. Those are all important things that can make it. They actually will get you more money for your business because when we look at it, we feel like that business is just more organized, right? Yeah. So what I'm hearing is if you're going to invest money into preparing your company to be purchased, the number one place you'd spend that money is in getting your financials correct. No doubt. I mean, I think I think even if I'm not thinking about selling my business, when I yeah. get to that point, that size, right? Data is so important to growing a business and understanding the efficiency of a business. The only way you get good data is to organize your finances correctly, right? And then you you get on a spire, right? <laughs> of course, I'm all for that option. I was just going to follow up and say, is there any other areas where you would recommend investing pre-sale? Yeah. I mean, I think, and this is a size question, right, too, I think. Obviously, we talked about Aspire, and it's a very robust operational management platform, right? And I think I will say that there's companies that are, plenty of companies that are too small for Aspire. I honestly believe that, right? I can I run too. A, I can run a business up to a certain threshold. I mean, basically, with Excel spreadsheets and QuickBooks, and I can have all of my data very organized, and I can be an efficient you know, and then there's other small tools you can use that aren't that expensive. 
I think for us, and I talked about those levels that founders and companies hit to where they're at that point, right, where they may want to partner. They feel like they need help taking it to the next level. So what can happen with us already being a platform it's on Aspire is we've made that investment in that technology, right? So by yourself, it didn't make sense for that investment in a technology. But now being part of our partnership, it makes, you know, you get the technology, right? So it comes with it. So I think that's important too, is like, I'm really not, I'm not out there looking for companies that have done all the things that they need to do, right? To be the perfect landscape company. We want to offer something, right? That's part of the partnership. It's a give and take because obviously we're looking for margin improvement in some way, shape or form when we buy a business. That can come in a lot of ways. One is it's not for us. It's not, there's companies that do what we're doing that automatically come in and they want to cut overhead or make labor cuts to direct cost, right? That's not what we're doing, right? Yeah. We Our model is to disrupt operations as little as possible, right? Because you're a thriving company. You're a growing company. You lead with service. We lead with service, right? But what we're going to do is introduce, introduce tools like Aspire, right? I've done some interviews and I've talked about I've got what I call the Aspire lift in our business, right? There's a certain amount of margin I can produce additional just by putting a company on Aspire. Mm -hmm. And it's mainly real-time visibility. It's efficiency. It's just knowing where your money's going and how you're spending it. Knowing where people are, you know, real-time tracking. All of those things help you be a more efficient business. So really, I'm looking for companies that are ready for us to take some of the things we've got as a platform, infuse them in their business, and then we all benefit, right, from that, be it margin, be it growth, you know, organic growth, be it whatever that is, both sides are benefiting from that. Yeah. And then the other thing you said, so that's so important. You're right, because we see, I see it every day when people get on Aspire, how they're profits increase. But the other thing that you said, I don't want to skip over it too much, is that you talked about segmenting your business and breaking it out into divisions. The conversations I've had, a lot of times business owners think the more divisions you have, the more powerful your company looks. And I, I actually tend to disagree with that. Like Having really defined two, three divisions can make a company look very desirable. What's your take on segmentation and how segmented should a business be? And what do you look for? And in, in, segmentation for the companies you, you I mean, purchase. And you you bring up a good point that I need to clarify, right? Is I don't love a company that's, you know, all of a sudden they've got their irrigation division, they've got their construction division, their maintenance division, they've got all of these different, right, companies even. A lot of them are creating additional LLCs and all. What I'm talking about is understanding where your revenue is coming from, right? It's really so there's contract maintenance, right? Contract maintenance, reoccurring contractual jobs every day. And then there's enhancements for those jobs, right? Where it's be your whether it be your color work or your, you know, your moss or straw or whatever that is, the your beds, all the you know, enhancement things that come with contract. And then of course there's what you'd call your construction install work, right? Which is your heavier stuff, right? And some even do a little install and construction lines to kind of get the masonry and the flat work and the heavy stuff segmented away from typical installs. But that, you know, that's your new beds or your, you know, coming in and doing irrigation, right? And then of course there's the irrigation, right? Repairs and installs. I mean, for me, it's more, it's not about having all these different departments. 
It's more about just understanding what drove that revenue, what type work you were doing to drive that revenue, because then you can find trends in that, right? Where are you producing the most margin? And even like I said, even if you're not thinking about selling your business, you need to understand what produces the highest margin for you, where the most growth is coming from, you know, labor costs are the highest. So when I say segmentation, I'm really talking about being able to analyze the data, right? Yeah, Trey, and you hit on a good point of whether you're looking to sell or not, it's good to operate your business as an investment. Landscape companies aren't easy to liquidate like Apple stock. You can't just sell them one day. But if you run a clean business, you have good EBITDA. And one point that I'd like to point out, which is really hard to get, is EBITDA by division. So it's easy, I think, to track revenue, maintenance revenue versus construction versus enhancement. But when you get down to EBITDA by division. So what's your recurring revenue EBITDA versus construction EBITDA? And as we track that, we realized maintenance was actually not really making money. It, it was really a break-even business for us. And this is six months after bringing on Aspire, we were able to define and, and delineate our expenses to a very deep level. And we found out that we were just undercharging for our maintenance services. And I think it's just a common thread in the landscape industry because it's so hard to accurately put your equipment and your material, well, not your materials, that's easy. It's the equipment, your labor, your vehicles, your workers' comp, your overhead, your office expenses. Once you separate that into really how much does maintenance use versus construction, uh, we were surprised. And we've made a lot of changes to our system, to our pricing since to kind of right that ship. And I've got to imagine as you guys go into the due diligence process, are you ever surprised by, or maybe you're not surprised, but do you find information that surprises the owner of the company you're looking at? in terms of where their profitability is coming from? Yeah, no doubt. I, and back to kind of what we were giving advice to founders, right, is, is first off, understanding what should be above the line, right? First, I tell people all the time, get your gross margin buckets correct first, right? Overhead, SG&A, that's one thing, but make sure you're getting things. We've purchased businesses or come in, or come in and looked at businesses where I mean, they literally have direct labor hitting below the line, right? And so you find all these different things that people are charging above and below. So one key is to get get your direct costs that go directly to those jobs. And that's what Aspire helps you do, right? To understand yep. what that is. But then I'll tell you, this is funny about a business we bought uh, in Alabama there. So when we went through the Aspire integration period, right? You know, they're entering all their, you know, they're getting their data correct and then entering all their contracts into Aspire, right? And so this uh, general manager uh, calls me and he's like, or I call him actually about something else. And I'm like, well, how's Aspire going? He's like, yeah, you know, it's, uh, we're going through getting all the data together and putting it in there. And he's like, you know what I figured out? I was like, what? He's like, I'm not making money on a bunch of jobs that I never realized I'm not making anything, right? So he started to load all the buckets and separate out his costs and the contract. And he's like, wow, why haven't I increased the price here? You know, I need to make some price increases. And so that's exactly what you're talking about, right? And that's whatever type operational software you're using, right? And of course, we use Aspire. It really is just about exposing people to data. Back to the same thing I said is uh, because there are a lot of people out there who because it adds up at the end of the month, and that's what I call it. I call it the wait till the end of month approach, right? We got more money than we spent, right? So we're doing yeah. good. But there's usually a lot left on the table that you could have managed to and increase the profitability of your business. 100%. I call it bank balance accounting. 
yeah. your bank yeah. balance is up, then you're, I guess you're doing good, but yeah. there's, we had there's room on the, and so I'd love to go through the process in just kind of a step-by-step process of a company's interested, you all make some type of a, of a connection and tell me a little bit of how you go from a meet and greet meeting to an LOI. What does that process kind of look like? And then I'd love to talk a little bit more specifically about how do you close? What is a second turn on the equity? How do you invest in the larger platform, key employee investment, so on? So maybe talk us a little bit about that first meeting to LOI process. What can a, a founder or owner expect working with LMC? Yeah, I mean, when we first, you know, kind of make contact, however that came, you know, whether people came directly to us through, you know, our website or just looked us up and reached out to us, right? Which is, which to me is the best way. Or they came through us, you know, through a third party, a broker, through uh, Travis, our private equity, whichever way they came to us, right? So yes, we set up that first meeting, right? And that first meet and greet meeting is really to, first off, it's about back to what I said is we've got to be good listeners, right? So we really just like to listen to the story. How did they get to where they are, right? How did they build that successful business that's got them in a position to create this opportunity, right? So I think understanding that, because once I hear and understand that, then that kind of helps me with molding a plan for them, right? Like I told you before, we don't have a box, right? So I'm not putting them in a box and then that's creating the plan or listening and then creating a plan. So then we start to understand what they want to do, why they're considering this, right? What their pain points may be, where their successes have been. And then we start to talk about our other partners, right? And kind of what we've done in different scenarios, kind of why we've had successes there. Brad Cox, my SVP of operations, you know, he's founder, him and his father, right? With our Houston business. Um, And Brad, you know, had a lot of runway left, right? Made a large reinvestment and wanted to be part of my senior group, right? He's really involved in M&A too, because he has a story to tell about how they, first off, how they grew that business to be so successful. But then secondly, why they chose us to partner with and how it's gone for, basically for him, it's been near a year and a half, right? In the new role he's in. And so- So Trey, on that, just to interrupt you for a quick minute, you have a founder, an owner of a company you all acquired now on the senior vice president, as a senior vice president on the leadership team working on M&As. Is That's that right. correct? That's, That's right. awesome. M&A, and, M&A operations finance. I tell Brad all the time. I mean, I, right, I learned, right? And I don't know how long it's been since I learned, right? I spent years wanting to be the smartest guy in the room. I don't think I ever achieved that when I look back either. But then I finally, one day, it's probably been 20 years ago, I woke up and said, I'm going to, everybody I think is talented. I'm going to try to put them around me, right? And Brad's a talented guy and, uh, you know, and he uh, brings a lot to the table. So yeah. And then we had people in the other businesses that where we are, success stories where they became regional vice president, one of them, where they were promoted to a general manager over an entire business because a founder departed, whatever. It just... People a lot of times underestimate the opportunity we can create for employees. We need people, right? It is never our goal to exit good people, right? If we exit good people, we've got a problem, right? So, but back to, you know, back to talking about that path, right? So we have that meeting, we figure out where they want to go, we understand their story. And then basically we talk around our company, right? Our partnerships, the people involved in it, you know, Brad can share his story. We have other stories. After they hear that, we really want them to kind of take that meeting and sleep on it, right? 
here's everything we heard about this organization. Here's the opportunity they're offering. And then they something we said may have triggered a whole different thought process for them, right? And then when they come back and decide whether they would like to talk more about the opportunity, that's where we kind of get started. Well, we've got a simple list, you know, one pager kind of a request, right? We sign an NDA, right? We get the privacy taken care of and they just start to give back some information. A lot of that's going to be around the data we talked about, right? Revenue segmentation, customer concentration, some of those basic things that you can run out of QuickBooks reports, right? Just to kind of get an idea and a look at what the size of the company is and profitability of the company. So that's kind of the next step is getting to that point. At this point, we're not very, we're taking the information they give give us and we're that that's the, the source of truth at that point, right? So then we basically tell them our, when we get this information back, we can then get you a valuation of what we think your organization is worth. You know, it'll have an ad, we want an asset list too, right? We want to understand the fleet, how old the fleet is, those type things, equipment, right? But then we can get them an evaluation back. Usually, we're usually honestly waiting on the founder, right? To get that data we asked for back. And then once we get it, it usually takes, it's a matter of getting the right people together, but we can usually within a week or so have an evaluation back and that comes in a form, an LOI, unless they were somebody that just said, hey, I want to have a conversation about what you think my business is worth. Normally, once we see the business, we decide that it is a business. We believe that for me, what's most important is how am I going to sustain that business and keep it moving forward, right? What I lose sleep over every night is making a partnership where we didn't sustain that business, right? Where we backed up, we lost a bunch of clients, those type things. And of course, you guys know we're managing a family of brands in these partnerships. We don't go out there and slap a new name on your door from the beginning or even in the end, right? We're propping up these brands. We're beginning to market them and sell to them and take them to the next level. So that's important. So usually that's when the LOI comes, right? After we get to what we believe the valuation is and we agree that it's a business we can sustain and would like to have a partnership with, send the LOI over. And when you talk about reinvestment, we don't require a reinvestment. Okay. A lot of firms do, right? I think it's important. Obviously, everybody believes in skin in the game, right? I think you're better off. And then I tell people all the time, our investment, we have a path that we believe gets us to a certain return on the investment, right? And if you look at the things that you can invest in out there, you know, as an individual, we believe that the opportunity you got because of this partnership is one of the better investments out there today, right? Where a lot of people would love to get an opportunity to invest in something like this that has a proven track record to get to a certain return, right? So we we go through that to make sure they understand. And then we also, we open it up to key players in the organization to also make an investment, even where we got opportunities to match their investment, you know, with, with a loan, right? Where that they don't pay off to liquidity. We've got a lot of creative ways to get skin in the game. We create restricted stock programs where we can incentivize people that maybe couldn't make an investment at that point in time where they've also got equity in the business. Because I want as much skin in the game as we can get. We've got a management team now that exists of about staff management. We've got 130 people or something that are on our staff mm -hmm. management team. And 
we've had two round. We had another round recently before we started our heavy M&A where we allowed people to reinvest again if they didn't invest initially. And we've got near 50 investors in this business that work in this business. Wow. And to me, that says a lot about their belief. And a lot of those made that after they had been on with us for months or even in excess of a year. So that just says a lot about the culture we're trying to create, right? We've got people that believe in where we're trying to go and the, the positive people culture we've got. Yeah. Oh, I think it. you mentioned skin in the game. It, it gets everyone on the same page of let's do what's best for the organization and what's best for the entire team. Now, when you guys, you know, let's fast forward, let's say, all right, LOI, you guys get to an agreement, you close the deal. Are you setting up as those individuals are becoming part of the partnership? Are you setting up separate companies for them at that market? Or does that company now become a subsidiary or what have you of the larger holding company? Maybe just walk us through as, as yeah. high level as possible of how that works. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the type acquisition, right? There's different ways you acquire a company, right? Be it an asset purchase, be it a stock purchase or whatever that is. But our plan is so if we buy the entity, right, in a stock purchase, we're going to keep that entity and that's the entity it's going to operate under, right? If we do an asset purchase, we have to set up a new entity. That's the way it works, but it's going to be a new entity. The holding company is just these entities are falling underneath the holding company. So we set up a either a new entity or we use the existing one. But then, of course, as you were saying, is we want to promote that market and that brand, right? So we're going to keep the name of that company. You know, there are some exceptions out there. I'm a, I'm a very candid person. In Alabama, the three businesses we bought, we all got together after about six months and we decided to make a consolidated brand there, right? We had one brand that had no really no brand market share whatsoever you know they and then we had one that was a, a name of a founder and that founder agreed that's not the right thing for us we had one that really would scale nice so we decided to do that um but all these companies are their brand but then a they're an lmc landscape partner right that's what they are right and so that's uh you know we do have to make some strategic decisions if we're buying a small company right in the market where we already own a company right we have to make brand decisions in that, but really our goal is to buy companies with good reputations, good momentum, good relationships, partnerships with their clients, and just build off that brand. Yeah, that makes total sense. If you're already in a market with a good brand and you're buying a smaller company, no reason to have two brands in that market. Just roll it up. It makes it tough to do business, really. It does. Yeah, it makes it confusing for clients too, yeah. of like who's yeah. who. And so Let's talk a little bit about this key employee investment. If you have a leadership team, you're right, let's just say you're running a 10 to $15 million a year business. You have a nice group of five to seven leaders that really run that day-to-day, -day. great momentum. They got hooked up with you. And these leaders who have no equity as of today get an opportunity for the first time in their career to be, be shareholders. You know, What positives have you seen out of that process when these leaders become shareholders you know, does it change their thought process, their mindset, their engagement with the business? You've probably seen this very close. Give us a little bit of a summary of, of what you've seen there. Yeah. And it's, I learned a long time ago, right? Being part of a kind of a startup group that we built a nice business. And then even being where in the Fortune 500, right? Where stock equity was a big part of compensation, right? And what it means to you to have that piece in the pie. Well, and really, what we're doing, it's even more granular where it's amazing to me, first off, right? You know, I own a piece of this, right? Just that 
mentality and that thought process, right? I'm not just collecting salary and bonus anymore, right? I own a piece of this. And then seeing and understanding what that, you know, and I think modeling is important for people. And I try to have reoccurring meetings with people that are investors where they understand the modeling based off of real time, what we've been doing in the business. So here's what our investment's kind of looking like, right? There's no guarantee in any of that, right? But we're modeling it and then showing them if we go here, here, and here, this is what this can turn into, right? Because that's where people start to see. You start looking at somebody and all of a sudden they're seeing an opportunity for what they have in the business to become 3X or 5X or 8X or 10X. That's where they start to do the math, right? And they it just feeds their passion for the business. But then I think also for people that are sometimes in a smaller business, leadership that's even in a 10 to $15 million business, right? Which is a nice business. They maybe haven't seen what they need to see and haven't developed to the point to understand what a bigger business needs in leadership, right? And so by having people with skin in the game, I'm able to have candid conversations when we're making, because there's plenty of decisions that get made, right? That if you act off of impulse, you're like, why are we doing this? This just seems like a lot of time, a lot of pain, right? Change is painful, right? Why are we doing this? Well, when I've got people with skin in the game, I can have a more strategic conversation to first off to say, look, y'all know what my job is. You know how I'm compensated, just like you're being compensated off your investment in this business. So I, you know, I'm able to get their buy-in on the fact that first off, I believe in very collaborative giving them an opportunity to collaborate in the decision is very important. And I do that with my teams, right? I want us to come to a consensus. Just sometimes we don't. And I have to say, this is what we're going to do. Sure. Anybody that says that's not true, you know, they're not being honest, but I get people to get in a more strategic mindset where they look further down the road. And I think in any executive coaching or leadership coaching you've ever seen people get in, one of the biggest things is thinking at least the next level above you, right? Learning to strategically think about that next role, right? And so I believe in that and trying to get people to think that way, right? If you're a branch manager and you want to be a regional man, you know, a vice president of operations or regional vice president, I need you to show me at this level your ability to think that way strategically, right? So that skin in the game, besides the passion and the ownership and all those things, it makes our team more strategic. Because people are, they're not just thinking about today, they're thinking about where we're trying to go, right? And I think that's important. And then that just lends to their career, right? No matter what happens with this endeavor, if they move on somewhere, we've really given them something. You know, because strategic thought process is a skill set that's something that is learned. I believe strategic thinking can be learned, right? So we're giving them that ability to think strategically, which will help them wherever they go to work, right? Oh, yeah. Strategic thought process is not something that comes natural to most people, and it's something we have to practice just like any other skill. But what I'm hearing more than anything, Trey, is you're providing an opportunity to have a conversation around the enterprise value of these companies rather than just day-to-day, how do we add more value to the customer, which is important. But I think the conversation of how do we increase your shareholder value? How do we take this company from the value it is today to three, four, five, 10 exit over the next few years as a team, which I feel is hard to have as with an employee, because all you're saying is, hey, how am I going to get rich as an owner? 
But if they have no ownership, they have no skin in the game. I think most owners avoid the conversation of how do we 10x the value of this organization if that person you're having a conversation with owns 0% of the organization. So I love the model that you guys are creating. And my last question, then I'll pass it back to Maggie here is, give me a little viewpoint, high level strategy, four or five years down the road. What is LMC's vision for potentially an exit or, or continued growth? What do you, you know, without giving away your secrets here, what do you, what is your guys' vision? Yeah, I mean, first off, my priority was to build a foundation of the platform, right? To take our first acquisitions and then build our foundation, right? Invest, right? I had to stand up a team to get ready, right? To go heavy M&A. And, but a big part of that was making sure creating our organic growth engine, right? Through uh, marketing, which a lot of these companies really didn't have lead generation marketing created, right? A dedicated sales team, right? We were doing a little bit of that hodgepodge here and there, but a true sales leader leading a sales team, right? We all know the churn and landscape. It's a 90-10 churn in a lot of cases, right? Where 10% of your business is going out just because once you get bigger, especially they sold a business, you know, a new property management group came in. It's not just because you lost business, right? Because you did a poor job. Just there's the churn of this business. It's a commoditized business to an extent, right? So getting ready for that churn, you know, we're going to grow 20 plus percent organically this year in contract maintenance, right? And that's what we really wanted to ramp up in some of these businesses. So that was foundational at the start. And now for us, now that we've got kind of our integration plan built. We've got our team in place, right, to integrate new businesses. Now we're moving to that M&A, right? We've got our other businesses thriving, growing, right? So now we're moving to that point where we're turning on the M&A again. We want to get in other markets. We want to do some bolt-ons, right? We've invested, right? We've made a lot of investments in overhead. So from a shareholder standpoint, you want to grow and you want to gradually see that overhead percentage shrink, right? As we start to scale the business. So that's really where we are right now. And the one thing, last thing I'll say about the founders and the consideration for a founder, it's really about, you start out thinking about it really is just about the money in some aspects. Who's giving me the most for my business? Most founders want to stay involved in some way for some certain amount of time. Most founders care about the people that work for them, or they've got, you know, legacy people that they want to see doing well. So you've got to put enough thought, and this is something a message Brad delivers really well, in the fact that when you look back in 12 months, you don't want to have regrets in the partner you chose, right? Because just because they paid you the most amount of money, even if you just decided you were leaving that business in 12 months, right? You're going to look back because you built a successful business because you were a passionate leader, you cared about your people. So you want to try to get with somebody that you feel like is trying to keep a positive culture, cares about people, understands that it's a people business where you don't look back and you're like, man, I I got all the money I wanted and everything, but yeah, I got some regrets, right? So, you know, I think that's a, and Brad being a founder, right? I love the way he delivers that message because there were some opportunities he had where we weren't the, the highest offering, right? We sat in the middle somewhere, but he, you know, he cared about the legacy and the people and all those things. And so fortunately he measured things that way, right? Yeah. I just got to commend you guys. It sounds like the vision, the strategy, the way you have approached this. I've heard a lot of stories on one end or the other, this private equity process. And you know, it sounds like your guys' team has a has a good thought out process and people like Brad are are proof of that. It's worth it. I commend you for that. Well done. Maggie. Private equity. 
what I tell people all the time is private equity doesn't run this business. And I connected with a private equity that I knew was not going to try to run this business because me and my style does not survive in an environment like that, right? And so our private equity was very respectful of, they knew what they didn't know, right? And they knew what they needed in a leadership team. And that's a big deal because I've had plenty of former colleagues and mentors that taken on these deals to where the private equity assigns an operating partner, right? That really is trying to run your business every day. I knew that was an environment for me. And I also know in a business like landscape services, if you don't understand the granular parts of that business, you're not going to be successful in it. So we've been fortunate. Yeah. Good day. Yeah, it's so true. We are a people business. We are a people industry. And exactly what you guys are doing is right in line with that. So I commend you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing important things. Well, with that, we like to end every episode with a trade secret. And I apologize. I didn't give you much warning on this. That was my fault. But it's a secret that you've learned through your years of working in the trades. Something that you can't typically find in a book or you've heard on a podcast or something. Just something that you've learned organically through your time of being in the front lines all the way through management. And do you have something, Trey, that you want to share for us as a secret to share with our listeners? I can't go to one of these many books on the bookshelf. I mean, you can. I don't know if I would know if you did that. So unless you gave it away. (laughs) The thing with, it's as I said earlier, the thing with me is I've never been the smartest guy in the room. I think I absorb well, though, right? I've absorbed a lot. I've had some, I've been fortunate to have some great mentors, right? That were, came through the service business from the ground up, right? Which to me is uh, what makes this business so unique is the fact that people, uh, you can still do that, right? You can still do that today by having integrity, having some leadership skills and being able to drive accountability to people, right? Being people, people to own their piece of the pie, right? I think you can go through an organization like that. So what I would say is that as first off, yeah, I started at the bottom, right? And so that gave me a real appreciation of that. But I don't think you, you don't necessarily have to start at the bottom to make people feel important in all levels of jobs on the front line all the way up, right? And so I think people find like I come across as a really, I guess, a hard-nosed, closed door, tough leader, you know, but people find out really quick that I'm so appreciative of the work that gets done from the beginning to the end, because I've done all of that work that it's back to that, you know, it's an old cliche. This is not some trade secret, but when I go to businesses, I go find everybody I can find walking around and I introduce myself to them. I ask them about their job, what goes on in their job. I asked them, you know, I learned about their family and how they got to where they are. And I actually retain really well on that kind of stuff, right? And so I'm always quick to see people again and follow up on that. And I tell my, that's the culture I want in my team, right? If you're too good to speak to people that work for us throughout our organization, or if you think you're better than them, or if you're at a level that you shouldn't be communicating with them, then that's the cultural problem. And I've been in some cultures like that. And so for me, it's to make sure everybody feels equally a part of an organization, right? And that you thank people. Again, these are thankless jobs out there, a lot of these jobs that are getting done by people. So that's not some secret sauce. And a lot of leaders will say that. But I think 
what happens with the growth of your business, what happens with the goals you're trying to reach, you know, the proof's in the pudding there. But I think for me, it's, you know, I, I grew up on a farm, right? Uh, where we had a little bit of money some years and no money a lot of years, right? And my dad was a, a Vietnam veteran who started from the very bottom with his grandfather. And we farmed the dirt we had, which was a small amount. And I just have a great appreciation for people that just work every single day to get to where they're trying to go to support their family, right? And so I think remembering that's been very important to me. And that's not a secret sauce. And But if y'all find out a secret sauce in the service <laughs> I'm still looking for that, right? Yeah, I. Uh, that's so. What you said is so important, and I'm, I have two follow-up comments or comments slash questions, I should say. The first is before we started recording this podcast today, and to give a little timeline, it is Thanksgiving week, and before we started recording, I asked Justin how his week was going, and he said it's great. It's it's Turkey Handout Day, and I, I asked him, I go, what does that mean? He goes, oh, we give out a turkey. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like a special employee gets a turkey. He goes, no, every employee gets a turkey. And that's just a small example about putting others first, exactly what you're saying right now. It's a people industry and and respecting the people that you work with. So kudos to you, Justin, for doing that. And kudos for you to do, Trey, for recognizing how important that is and sharing that secret with us. My second thing, though, I do have a question. You started off your secret by talking about mentorship and finding a good mentor in the industry. So one final piece of advice I'm going to ask for you is someone who is younger in their career here in the industry. How do you find a mentor? How do you identify a mentor? And I guess, how did you find your mentors? I mean, I guess with mine, I was fortunate to, I would say that my mentors ended up being people I worked for, right? When it came professionally, it was really, they were my best mentors. I was fortunate enough to end up in a position to where I had a very senior person in a couple of instances that just, you know, that had the same, a lot of the same core values as me, right? And I was fortunate enough to land them that way. And I've had other mentors through my personal and professional life, right? Be it, you know, be it family. You know, that's the thing too, is leaning on family members or friends or people that have been successful and why? Because it, you know, you don't have to be in the same business. It really just, you know, because when it comes to being successful in a business, there's things that you've got to have mentoring and learn to manage personally and professionally, right? In order to be successful in that. So when I, you know, first off, I think back about some of the businesses over in the past that I've acquired or partnered with and look back at people have been successful. There are a a lot of peer groups out there. I think that peer groups can be, you can Google peer groups for growing landscape business or whatever you want anywhere, right? And start to see people out there. First off, by sitting in a room, not isolating yourself, sitting in a room with five other people that are at a $10 million business that they're trying to grow is so impactful, right? Because you think you're on this island, and you may not have a friend or relative or anything that can share those resources. So peer groups are really great places to end up running into people who even become mentors. You meet somebody there that's 25 years more senior than you, been in business a lot longer. Next thing you know, you've made that friendship and they become a mentor to you, right? So I think sourcing out peer groups, going to getting involved in associations, right? And organizations as you're growing a little bit, That's where mentors expose themselves as well. And you meet people. I actually, I met with probably at the Aspire conference, right? I talked to four or five different people, even one that I talked to that wants his company to be the platform, right? For one of these endeavors. 
and then grow off of that. I shared a bunch of thought processes around that. I gave them my phone number and email. I said, I don't mind telling you what I think you should do to get there, right? They're in a market I wasn't even interested in being in to start with. And so, but then I had other smaller businesses that I think people, there's businesses we have not bought or they didn't sell or they sold to somebody else that I still have relationships with that founder to where I've given them some advice on how to get things in line or what to do, right? So I tell people all the time that I also don't mind giving advice or telling people what I know, right? I think mentors come along basically in kind of all the walks of life, right? And you also have to be looking for understanding and first knowing that you don't have all the answers. You know, I tell my team this when we're consolidating and buying people and everything is first off is uh, you've got to get out of that. You did things great and you grew a successful business, but now you got to realize that other people did the same thing you did. And so we've got to find best practices and things in all of our businesses in order to be successful. So I think you got to be looking for mentors to find a mentor, I think. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And when you start becoming receptive to that opportunity to learn in, in any situation, no matter your past success or failure, you become a better person, I think. And you tend to attract people who also want to mentor. I've been very fortunate in my career to run into people and by simply being open-minded to opportunities and being more curious than proud, I would say, is a, dif a differentiation there. You tend to find people who are happy to give you advice. And the last thing, Trey, what, what you said about your childhood and growing up in a farm in Alabama and the up and down of, of agriculture and farming and ranching, I think it's very relatable to a lot of people, whether you grew up in this industry or service industry or any industry. But you know, when you grow up, I also feel like it's really important to hold on to that foundational core that made you who you are today. All right. Well, thank you, Trey, so much for coming on today's podcast. We really appreciated the conversation and we look forward to sharing it with our listeners. Yeah. Thank you all so much. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Take care. Have a great Thanksgiving.